Exodus 20, verse 12. Hear now the reading of God's most holy word. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Let us go now to the New Testament, Matthew 5, verses 21 through 24. You have heard that it was said to those of old, these are the words of Christ, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar... And there remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. So far the reading of God's most holy word. May he add his blessing to the preaching of it this morning. We have come now to the sixth of the Ten Commandments, which is, You shall not murder. And before we consider what this commandment requires and forbids, I would like to make some introductory remarks which I hope will help us to understand and to properly apply uh, this commandment. In previous sermons, I have said that the Ten Commandments contain a summary of God's moral law. In fact, this is the language that our catechism uses. Question 44 of our catechism asks, What is the duty which God requires of man? Answer, the duty which God requires of man is obedience to His revealed will. Question 45 then asks, What did God at first reveal to man for the rule of His obedience? Answer, the rule which God at first revealed to man for obedience was the moral law. Romans 2.14-15 and 5.13-14 are listed as support texts for this claim, and rightly so. Indeed, God's moral law was written on man's heart at the time of creation. And then question 46 asks, Where is the moral law summarily comprehended? Where is the moral law summarily comprehended? Answer, the moral law is summarily comprehended in the Ten Commandments. The way this answer is worded I think is very important. Notice the answer is not, the Ten Commandments are the moral law, but rather, the moral law is summarily comprehended in the Ten Commandments. In other words, in the Ten Commandments we find a summary of God's moral law. There are at least two reasons why this is the the proper wording. One, I have pointed out in previous sermons that, are, that there are some things written in the Ten Commandments that were unique to Old Covenant Israel. In other words, there are some things said in the Ten Commandments that are rightly classified not as moral law. Remember, moral laws govern the moral life of all men and all women living in all times and in all places. They are universal moral truths that apply to, to everyone forever. Uh, There are some things said in the Ten Commandments that are rightly classified not as moral law, but as positive law 
and His promise. The best example of this is found in the fourth commandment, which is about keeping the Sabbath day holy. Sabbath keeping is moral, brothers and sisters. The Sabbath is to be honored by all men in all times and places. This is the way that God is to be worshipped as it pertains to the use of time, and this was established at the time of creation. Six days are for work, and one day is to be set apart for rest and worship. That is what the Sabbath law requires. The Sabbath law requires us to rest and worship one day out of seven. By the way, it also requires us to work diligently on the other six days of the week. That is oftentimes neglected. So to treat the Sabbath day as if it were common, to go on working and recreating and to neglect public and private worship is a violation of God's moral law. In other words, it is sin. But notice the fourth commandment says that the seventh day is a Sabbath day. I've argued in previous sermons that the first day of the week is now the Sabbath day, and I will not go into great detail about this at this time. But the question is, how could it be that the moral obligation to rest and to worship one day out of seven remains, whereas the day itself has changed? The answer is that the pattern of six days for work and one day for worship is moral, whereas the command concerning the particular day is to be regarded as positive law. Positive laws are filled with symbolism, remember. They are added to the moral law. They're attached to particular covenants. And so they are bound to change with the passing away of one covenant, and the inauguration of a new, which indeed happened at the resurrection of Christ from the dead. It was then that the new covenant was brought into force. The Sabbath day, therefore, changed. And I say all of this simply to remind you that there are some things said in the Ten Commandments that were unique to Old Covenant Israel. And this is why we cannot say the Ten Commandments are the moral law, or the Ten Commandments equal the moral law. No, the moral law is summarily comprehended in the Ten Commandments, but there are some things said in the Ten Commandments that God gave to Israel in the days of Moses that go beyond the moral law. There are positive laws found within the Ten Commandments. There are also promises. An example of this is the blessing that is promised in the Fifth Commandment. Honor your father and your mother. That is, moral law applies to all people in all times and in all places. It does not change. But then the scriptures also say that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. That comment there was unique to Old Covenant Israel. It was to Israel that God promised to give a land. It was to Israel that God promised to bless them in the land should they obey uh, the terms of the covenant. God promised to give Old Covenant Israel land. He, his promise was unique to them. So for these reasons, we cannot equate the Ten Commandments with the moral law. Instead, we are right to say that the moral law is summarily comprehended in the Ten Commandments. The other reason our catechism says the moral law is summarily comprehended in the Ten Commandments is because the Ten Commandments are to be regarded as just that, a summary of the moral law. In other words, the Ten Commandments do not provide us with moral instructions in exhaustive detail. No, instead, the moral law of God is summarized in these ten words. This is really the point that I wanted to make in the introduction here because I think this helps us greatly to properly understand and to apply 
the moral law to our lives. When we speak of the moral law, we are talking about God's standard for the moral and upright conduct of men and women. And I wonder if you've ever considered how pervasive questions of morality are to human living. Truthfully, though we do not often think about it, every decision that we make regarding what we will think, what we will say, what we will do, and every decision that we make regarding what we will not think, say, and do, is a moral decision. Have you ever contemplated this? Morality is pervasive, isn't it? We, we, we cannot do anything in this world. We, can't even, we cannot even think a thought apart from our moral convictions. When we speak a word, we do so with moral convictions behind those words. When we do deeds, moral convictions motivate them. They undergird them. They're behind them. Everything that we think, say, and do is, in fact, influenced by our view of what is right and wrong, good and evil. And with the pervasiveness of moral questions now in mind, think again of the Ten Commandments and consider how brief they are. They're very brief. First of all, there are only ten of them. Some might wonder if ten laws will really be enough to govern the moral behavior of men and women on earth in all of its complexity. Morality is complex. Ethics are complex. Really, will these ten words, these ten laws, be enough to govern the moral behavior of men and women on earth and all of its complexity? And two, these ten commandments are very brief. This is true of commandments one through four and five through ten, but I'll focus only on the second table of the law for time's sake. Listen again to the second table of the law, the moral law contained within it. Honor your father and your mother. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, and you shall not covet. Do you hear how brief that law is? Only ten words, and the words themselves are very brief. Again, some may wonder if these six very brief laws will be enough to govern the moral conduct of men and women in thought, word, and deed. Brothers and sisters, these ten very brief words, are enough, so long as we understand them to be a summary of God's moral law. The Ten Commandments are not a moral law code in exhaustive detail. They do not provide direct and explicit instructions for every moral decision that individuals and societies must make. No, the moral law of God is summarily comprehended within the Ten Commandments, and these Ten Commandments are meant to be fleshed out. They're meant to be fleshed out by us. Men and women are to know these general moral laws. They are to reflect upon them deeply and then apply them with great care to the many and sometimes complex moral decisions that they face. Individuals must do this. Not only must we know the summary of God's moral law, we also must consider what these general moral principles require and forbid by way of implication. We have learned that when a command is stated negatively, in other words, when it is stated like this, you shall not, the positive side of the command is implied. And when the command is stated positively, in other words, when it is you shall, 
the negative is implied. More than this, we have learned that a general moral principle must be fleshed out and applied according to its necessary consequences. We saw this very clearly in our consideration of the fifth commandment. The command to honor your father and mother requires us to preserve the honor and perform the duties belonging to everyone in their various places and relations as superiors, inferiors, or equals. The fifth commandment does not say this directly, but it says it by way of sure implication. If it is true that children are to honor their mother and their father, then it is also true that honor is to be shown to everyone, no matter their particular station in life. So how are individuals to flesh out these moral principles set forth in the Ten Commandments, to apply the implications to the complex moral decisions that we face? How, how are we to do this? I will say two things. One, individuals must use their minds. We must use our minds. Individuals must contemplate God's moral law and use their reason to apply God's moral law in a way that is wise. Those who are wise are able to take general moral truths and apply them to particular circumstances. Those who have matured in wisdom are able to do this quickly and consistently. And yes, even those who do not believe and those who have no access to or regard for the Holy Scriptures may attain a degree of wisdom. If you were to read the best of the ancient heathen philosophers you would see that they were able to touch upon matters of truth, morality, and justice. But we know that the beginning of true wisdom is the fear of the Lord. Those who know, worship, and serve Yahweh through faith in His Christ, those who have access to the Scriptures and regard them as the Word of God, are in a privileged place as it pertains to the attainment of moral maturity and true wisdom. Christians do not only have access to God's moral law as revealed in nature. No, instead, Christians have access to the Scriptures too. The light that general revelation gives concerning truth, morality, and justice may be compared to a candle, but the light that the Scriptures give can be compared to the light of the sun. Brothers and sisters, we have both the light of the candle and the light of the sun by which to see matters pertaining to morality, truth, and justice. So I've said that individuals must use their minds to flesh out the basic moral principles set forth in the Ten Commandments. Two, I say that individuals, and especially Christians, must use the Scriptures to understand the implications of the summary of God's moral law contained within the Ten Commandments. Now what do I mean by this? I mean that Christians must not only know the Ten Commandments, they must also pay careful attention to the rest of the Scriptures to see how the Ten Commandments are fleshed out and applied by the, by the prophets and by Christ and by His apostles. In other words, in the Holy Scriptures, we do not only find a summary of God's moral law in the Ten Commandments. No, we also find a divinely inspired application of them. And this provides us with a greater understanding of God's moral law. The Scriptures also provide us with an example to follow as we seek to live in a way that is pleasing to God in this world. I want you to consider how Paul, in 1 Timothy 5.17, addressed the moral question of whether or not pastors who are devoted to what we would call full-time ministry should be compensated for their labors. That's a moral question. 
Should men who devote themselves to full-time ministry be paid? Should they be compensated for their labor so that they might live? How did he go about answering this moral question? Is there anything in the law of Moses that speaks directly to this moral question? Answer, no. The law of Moses never addresses the question of whether or not pastors should be paid. You will not find it in the Old Testament. You certainly will not find it in the Ten Commandments. Not a direct statement, but listen to what Paul does. He quoted from Deuteronomy 25.4, which says, You shall not muzzle an ox when it is treading out the grain. And then he quoted also from Luke 10.7, which alludes to Leviticus 19.13, saying, The laborer deserves his wages. What is my point? My point is that Paul under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, shows us how God's moral law is to be applied to the moral questions that we face. The question, should pastors be paid, is not directly addressed in the law of the Old Covenant, and for obvious reasons. Certainly this moral question is not directly addressed in the Ten Commandments. How did Paul get to the bottom of this moral question? He fleshed out the implications of God's moral law. Paul does the same thing in 1 Corinthians 9 while addressing a similar question. There he says, For it is written in the law of Moses, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. And then he asks this question, Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Is this law really about oxen? Paul asks. And then he answers his his own question, saying, Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake, because the plowman should plow in hope, and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, Paul concludes, is it too much if we reap material things from you? In other words, those who labor in spiritual things should reap material uh, rewards so that they might live. Yes, Paul wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and with apostolic authority, but he also set an example for us, a divinely inspired example of how God's law is to be handled. He answered the moral question of whether or not ministers of the Word should be compensated by appealing to the civil laws given to Israel through Moses. And these civil laws, which are not binding on any nation in the way that they were binding on Old Covenant Israel, had a moral core to them. And what is the moral core of the civil laws? You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the wages of a hired worker shall not remain with you all night until the morning. What is the moral core of these civil laws that I have just quoted? It is the seventh of the Ten Commandments, which is, you shall not steal. I suppose we might also say that the sixth of the Ten Commandments, which is, you shall not murder, is at the core of these laws. These two general moral laws of the Ten Commandments, you shall not steal and you shall not murder, demand by way of implication that oxen be fed while they work and that laborers be compensated promptly and fairly for their wages. They also demand that those who labor in spiritual things be supported materially so that they might, so that they might live. What will happen to oxen if you demand that they work? But do not feed them while they work. Their life will be sapped from them, maybe even to the point of perishing. And what will happen to the, to the laborer who, who labors, but his pay is withheld from him? What will happen to him? 
His life will wither away, even to the point of perishing. The moral principle which undergirds these two civil laws, which were given to Old Covenant Israel, is that you shall not murder. You shall not murder. You shall preserve life. And you shall not steal. The oxen and the laborer deserve their wages. It is their right to have it. Do not steal from them. I suppose we could also apply the fifth commandment to these two civil laws and see the fifth commandment as a moral core that we're to simply honor people. We're to honor people, no matter what their position might be. You say, what a strange introduction to a sermon on the Sixth Commandment, especially on Mother's Day. (laughs) Well, I do believe that it is important for us to understand that the moral law is summarily comprehended in the Ten Commandments. This should move us to flesh out the implications of each of them as we strive to live in a way that is pleasing to God, having been reconciled to Him through faith in Christ alone and by His free grace. You see the problem. Most people, I think, will read the law of God only in a superficial way. It's a big problem. What does God's moral law say to us? Well, honor father and mother. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Don't steal and lie and covet. End of story. A superficial reading of God's moral law may lead some to say, I am innocent before God in regard to His moral law. No, this is a summary of God's moral law. These laws are to be applied to the heart. And when we apply these laws to the heart, we see that we have not kept them, but violated them in thought, word, and deed. And when we flesh out their implications, we certainly see that we have come short of these laws. Indeed, as we flesh out these implications of God's moral law, we come to see how it is that God wants for us to live in this world in a way that is pleasing to Him. Those who have been reconciled to God by His grace and through faith in Christ will love God and His Christ. And what did Christ say about those who love Him? He said, If you love Me, you will keep My commandments. Those who claim to love God in Christ and live in constant and unrepentant sin should pay very close attention to these words here. If you love Me, you will keep My commandments. In other words, to live in sin, in unrepentant sin, should alert you to the fact that even if you say you love God in Christ, perhaps you do not. Those who love God in Christ, they will keep Christ's commandments. A little later Christ said, If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. So those who love God will want to keep His commandments. They will strive to do so with the help of the Spirit. But to keep God's commandments, we must know what they are. We must know what they require and forbid. Indeed, God's law is to be kept even in the heart and mind, our motivation being love and thankfulness to God for the free grace He has bestowed upon us in Christ Jesus. So a superficial reading of the Ten Commandments simply will not do, brothers and sisters. Stated differently, I wish to urge Christians to love God's law, for God's law is good, provided that it is used in the right way. God's law is beautiful, And in keeping it, there is great reward. I wish to urge Christians to read God's law, to meditate upon it, and to flesh it out so that we might obey it in thought, word, and deed. I am urging you, brothers and sisters, to do this. Not to earn God's favor, but because God's favor has been freely bestowed upon you. Christians must contemplate God's law so that it might be applied with God's help in their individual lives 
in their homes, in our churches. We should also be concerned to see God's moral law applied to the judicial systems of the societies in which we live. If we do not see the Ten Commandments as a summary of God's moral law, then our understanding of what is right, good, just, and beautiful will be very, very limited, you see. We need to grow in this, brothers and sisters. We need to grow in wisdom. We need to mature morally. We need to contemplate God's moral law. I'll state the matter one more way before finally getting to the Sixth Commandment itself. Have you ever read Psalm 119? It is the longest chapter in the Bible. It's an acrostic psalm. By that I mean there are 22 stanzas of eight verses each following the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet. Within a stanza, uh, the first word of each verse begins with the same letter of the Hebrew alphabet. It's a beautiful poem. It's truly marvelous. It's grand. And what is this poem, this psalm, Psalm 119, what is it about? It is a grand poem about the beauty and magnificence of God's law. That's what it's about. It begins, Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. It's filled with declarations from King David concerning his love for the law. He says things like this, Your testimonies are my delight, they are my counselors. And how sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. The whole thing is about God's law, but different words are used to to refer to God's law, testimonies, and, and, and to the Word of God. And here the psalmist is saying, your, your word, your law is sweeter than honey to my mouth. In this psalm, David also pleads with the Lord to give him understanding. Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law, he says. So as the psalmist reads God's law, he pleads with the Lord, Open my eyes, give me understanding, clearly David was a man who read God's law, not superficially, but he contemplated God's law deeply. He goes on to say, I am a sojourner on earth. Hide not your commandments from me. My soul is consumed with longing for your rules at all times. Have you ever talked about God's law this way? Or have you ever even thought about God's law in this way? My soul is consumed with longing for your rules at all times. Truly, David's love for the law of God was very great. Now granted, there are many things written within the law of Moses that applied to David, the king of Old Covenant Israel, in a way that they do not apply to us who live now under the New Covenant. Nevertheless, with that issue aside, New Covenant Christians should be able to sing Psalm 119, to state it from the heart, to mean it. We too should say, we long For your rules at all times. Your law is sweeter to me than the honey of the honeycomb. This should be our perspective. Brothers and sisters, we live now under the new covenant, but we must read the law of God as it was revealed under the old covenant so that we might discern what God's moral law is and then live in obedience to it. This should be our prayer. Quoting again David from Psalm 119, 124. Deal with your servant according to your steadfast love and teach me your statutes. If you love me, God, then do this for me. Teach me your statutes. I am your servant. Give me understanding that that I might know your testimonies. So may the Lord help us now in our consideration of the sixth commandment. May he teach us what it requires and forbids. The sixth commandment is... 
you shall not murder. Some English translations say, thou shall not kill. This translation, I think, is bound to be misunderstood. Some may take this to mean that killing is always forbidden without exception. In fact, murder is the thing that is forbidden in the sixth commandment, not killing. The scriptures are clear that there are situations where killing is justified. One, in the case of executing justice within a judicial system. Genesis 9.6 says, Whoever sheds the blood of man by man, shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. This commandment was given not to Israel under Moses, but to all societies in the covenant that God transacted with all creation in the days of Noah after the flood. Here in Genesis 9-6, societies are mandated to uphold justice. This will require the formation of judicial systems of some kind. The basic principle is this, those who kill unjustly and with intent are to be put to death. Blood for blood, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Those who put murderers to death on behalf of society as servants within their judicial systems do not violate the sixth commandment. No, instead, they execute justice as servants of society and as servants of God. This is why the scriptures say, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. And a little bit later in Romans 13 we read, But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. The words of Romans 13 are rooted in the Noahic covenant, which I have just read from Genesis 9-6. And the point is this, civil magistrates and civil servants do not sin when they kill while upholding justice. Two, the scriptures also teach that men may fight in just wars. David did not sin when he killed Goliath, for example, and neither did Abraham sin when his clan went to war with the kings who had taken Lot captive. These killings happened in the context of just war. These were not violations of the sixth commandment. I want for you to notice that in both of these instances, the blood of man is shed not by an individual acting as an individual, but by an individual who either has some God-given authority or by one who is operating under some divinely appointed civil authority. In other words, individuals acting as individuals do not have the right to decide who is to live and who is to die on their own. Those decisions are to be made by societies through the judicial systems that they erect with authority derived from God as communicated in the Noahic Covenant. Societies must act with wisdom and justice as they formulate these civil laws and these systems. And to do this, they must consider God's moral law as revealed in nature and even more clearly in the Holy Scriptures. There is one other exception to this. According to the law of God, individuals may kill in self-defense. Exodus 22 verses 2 through 3 clarifies this, saying, If a thief is found breaking in and is struck so that he dies, there shall be no blood guilt for him. 
But if the sun has risen on him, there shall be blood guilt for him. I wonder if you understand what is being said here. Uh, Here is the meaning of this text. A man should not be considered guilty of murder if he kills an intruder who is a threat to his person and property. But if the sun rises on the intruder, in other words, if the victim goes after the thief on the next day when he is no longer in danger to seek revenge, and if he kills the thief, that is murder. That is murder. The thief should be brought to justice, but it is not the job of the individual to bring him to justice, and certainly death is not a fitting punishment for the crime of thievery. That is not just retribution. The principle, remember, is blood for blood, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. A thief should not be put to death. That is not just retribution. Instead, the thief should be forced to make appropriate restitution, not by the individual victim, but by society through the judicial systems that they have erected. Murder is the unjustified taking of a human life. That is what murder is. To violate the sixth commandment, one must kill unjustly and intentionally or accidentally because of some carelessness or negligent behavior. To be be involved in an accident that takes the life of another is not a violation of the Sixth Commandment, but to take the life of another accidentally because of carelessness or neglect is a violation of the Sixth Commandment. But this is very different from the unjust and intentional taking of a human life. The civil law code that God gave to Israel through Moses distinguished between these two kinds of, of violations of the Sixth Commandment, by the way. The taking of a life by accident because of neglect, on the one hand, and the taking of a life intentionally, with premeditation. Uh, The civil law code given to Israel through Moses distinguished between these two kinds of violations of the Sixth Commandment. The penalties, the civil penalties attached to these violations clearly show that the intentional and unjust taking of a human life is much worse than the accidental taking of human life even in the case of negligence. In in Deuteronomy 19, Israel was commanded to establish cities of refuge where those who killed someone unintentionally, here they are called a manslayer, where these could flee to escape those seeking revenge. You could see how this goes. Someone kills someone else accidentally. Now the family's upset and they go to take revenge upon the one who killed uh, their, their loved one. Those who killed unintentionally were to be protected in these cities of refuge from those who sought revenge. But in verse 11 of Deuteronomy 19, we read, But if anyone hates his brother and lies in wait for him and attacks him and strikes him fatally so that he dies, and he flees into one of these cities, then the elders of his city shall send and take him from there and hand him over to the avenger of blood so that he may die. Your eye shall not pity him, but you shall purge the guilt of innocent blood from Israel, so that it may be well with you. You see, those who kill with intent, those who kill with premeditation, those who kill with hatred in their hearts for their brother, they are to be punished by death according to Israel's civil laws. Not all of Israel's civil laws are to be adopted by other nations, for Israel was a holy nation and was in some ways unique. 
But we can learn about God's moral law by considering the civil laws of Israel. This is what we call the principle of general equity. The civil laws of Deuteronomy 19 regarding cities of refuge are a very good example of this. The sixth commandment sets forth the moral law. You shall not murder. Very simple, very brief, very basic. But the civil laws of Deuteronomy 19 help us to think more clearly about what murder is and about what murder is not. And the differing degrees of murder as well. I suppose that a wise person could figure this out through their consideration of God's moral laws revealed in nature. That is, by the candlelight of natural revelation. But the Holy Scriptures shed light on the matter with the intensity of the noontime sun. The lives of those who were killed accidentally were to be spared in Israel. In the case of neglect, restitution would have to be paid. But those who were proven to have killed intentionally with hatred in their heart, having lied in wait for their neighbor with premeditation, these were to be handed over to the avenger of blood so that they may die. Israel was not to pity this kind of murderer, but was, to command, but was to, commanded to purge the guilt of innocent blood from their midst so that it would be well with them. Again, you may see Deuteronomy 19.11-13. through 13. I have said that the civil law code given to Israel was unique to them. It is not to be taken as is and opposed unaltered on common nations. Israel was a holy and unique nation. We must remember this. But this does not mean that other societies cannot learn from the divinely inspired laws of Israel. They can. We can as a nation. But we must do it with great care. To put the matter succinctly, by way of example, Sabbath breakers should not be put to death in other societies as they were in Old Covenant Israel. Did you know that that is what the civil law of Old Covenant Israel required? You could go to Numbers chapter 15 verses 32 and following to see this. Sabbath breakers were to be put to death in Old Covenant Israel. What do we learn about the moral law of God, by the way, when we read Numbers 15, 32 and following? Uh, we learn that Sabbath keeping is a moral issue, that God is to be worshipped in this way, and that the people of God are to take this very seriously. Sabbath breakers were to be put to death in Israel. Here is an example of a law given to them because of their uniqueness. They're a holy nation. The laws were unusually strict in some regards, the ones that were given to Israel. But listen, those who have taken the life of another human being unjustly, intentionally, with premeditation and beyond doubt, these certainly should be put to death. So what is my reason for saying that those who commit murder, in what we would call the first degree, should receive the death penalty in our society, whereas Sabbath breakers should not? How did I come to that conclusion? Am I simply picking and choosing laws at random? Am I reading through the Old Testament scriptures and say, you know, I like this, but I don't like that so much. Therefore, we'll keep this, but do away with that. Is that what I am doing? Am I speaking from emotion? Am I speaking from personal preference? Is this merely an opinion of mine? No, the reason is this. All societies were explicitly commissioned by God to uphold justice through the terms of the covenant that God transacted with all creation in the days of Noah. The principle articulated then was this, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, blood for blood. 
Here we are speaking of crimes against persons. Here we are talking about matters of retributive justice. That principle was established not in the days of Moses. That principle was given not only to Israel. That principle was established at creation. And it was articulated clearly in the days of Noah and imposed upon all creation. All human societies are to be concerned with justice as it pertains to crimes against person. All human societies are to uphold justice. They are to see to it that retribution is paid. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth, blood for blood. The commandment regarding Sabbath breakers being put to death was given to whom? To Israel. To Israel as a holy nation. Their civil laws were to be concerned with the upholding of the first table of the law also, you see. This is not random, brothers and sisters. This is not preference or opinion. This is good biblical hermeneutics, you know. We have to see when and to whom certain laws were given. And it will help us a great deal to see what laws we should care to see enacted within our common civil government. Our common civil governments are to uphold retributive justice. Again, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, blood for blood. They are not, however, tasked with upholding the pure worship of God as Old Covenant Israel was. Who is tasked with upholding the pure worship of God in our nation today? Not the government, thanks be to God, but the church, the churches. The government must not hinder the pure and true worship of God. In fact, they are to use the sword to punish those who seek to hinder the pure and true worship of God. They are to leave us free to worship God according to the Word of God. But under the Old Covenant, you see, church and state were united. That was a holy nation. The kings were to see to it that God was worshipped according to to the law of Moses. Israel was to do this because they were a holy people, but common governments have been given no such commission. Common governments are to concern themselves with the second table of the law, crimes against persons, retributive justice. Well, so far I've provided you with a general and superficial explanation of what the words, you shall not murder, mean. I've also tried to tell you what they do not mean. Let's tease that out just a little bit. And to do this very quickly, I'll use our catechism. Question 74 asks, what is forbidden in the Sixth Commandment? Listen carefully to the answer. What is forbidden in the Sixth Commandment? I suppose our catechism should, could just have one word for the answer. Um, murder, you see, and move on. No, but our catechism is helping us to understand how this simple commandment, thou shalt not murder, is to be fleshed out. Here's the answer. The sixth commandment absolutely forbiddeth the taking away of our own life or the life of our neighbor unjustly or whatsoever tendeth thereunto. Did you hear that? We're to be concerned with the preservation of life, in other words, and that is what question 73 of our catechism says when it asks, what is required in the sixth commandment? Answer, The Sixth Commandment requires all lawful endeavors to preserve our own life and the life of others. That is certainly true. Brothers and sisters, our catechism sets our minds in the right direction as to how we are to to 
uphold the, the sixth commandment and live in obedience to it, both in a negative and positive way. The sixth commandment does not merely forbid murder, but it forbids us from taking our own life or the life of any others or for, from engaging in any behavior that tends thereunto, that, that leads to that. What does this commandment require of us? It requires us to seek the preservation of our own life and the life of others. It requires us to do lawful things to preserve our own life and the life of others. I, for the sake of time, uh, we'll say only that in terms of what the Sixth Commandment requires and forbids. If you have time, you should go to the Westminster Larger Catechism and you can, should consider the ways that it fleshes out uh, the Sixth Commandment. It's, it's more robust and, and even more helpful, I think. Uh, these two questions and answers, though, they're very brief. They're helpful. They set our minds off in the right direction concerning the implications of the Sixth Commandment. The command, you shall not murder, is straightforward and clear. What does this commandment require and forbid by way of implication? Please allow me to highlight five implications. Firstly, if the sixth commandment forbids individuals as individuals from killing other human beings, then it must also be true that individuals do not have the right to take away their own lives, but must leave it to God to determine the number of their days. It's not up to individuals to decide who is to live and who is to die. Judicial systems might make decisions like that as they seek to uphold justice, but never as an individual to take vengeance upon their enemy. And if that is true, then it is also true that we are not to harm ourselves. We are not to take it into our own hands to decide when it is that we shall depart from this world, but must leave it to God. Secondly, the Sixth Commandment does not only forbid the unjust and intentional taking of human life, it also forbids the accidental taking of human life through carelessness. Now the, un, now the intentional taking of life is much worse than the unintentional and accidental taking of a life. We've already established that. But to take away the life of another human being by accident and through carelessness or negligence is a violation of the Sixth Commandment. To use the language from our judicial system, it is not murder in the first degree, but it is manslaughter. And brothers and sisters, the Sixth Commandment forbids us from engaging in reckless behavior and negligence, which puts our lives or the lives of others at risk. You know, the, the, the point is this. All need to hear this, not just young people, but I am tempted to highlight this for our young people. As you read God's law, as you learn what the Sixth Commandment says, what it, what it says, you shall not murder, you should be able to reason with the help of Holy Scripture. That's even better. But you should be able to reason in this way. That means that I should drive safely when I get my license. You see? Why should you drive safely and not recklessly when you have your driver's license? Because God has said, you shall not murder. That is why. You should drive safely so that you preserve your own life. You should drive safely so that you are sure not to, to take the life of another accidentally. Accidents do happen, brothers and sisters. They do happen. But we must live carefully in this world so that we do not put others or ourselves unnecessarily at risk, you see. Some of the civil laws of Old Covenant Israel tease this out as well. People were commanded to build fences around their roofs. They were flat roofs, you see. They would have fences around their roofs so that a neighbor up there would not tumble over the side and, and be killed. If there was a pit dug in the ground, that pit was to be covered so that 
men and animals would not fall into it and be harmed. You see, the sixth commandment forbids us from engaging in reckless, reckless behavior and negligence, which puts our lives and the lives of others at risk. So to drive recklessly is a violation of the Sixth Commandment. To leave a large hole uncovered in your front yard next to the sidewalk is a violation of the Sixth Commandment. To knowingly be ill and to come into close proximity with someone who is physically frail is a violation of the Sixth Commandment. Though we have all seen how that principle can be taken too far and used by authorities to control populations in the name of health and safety. The principle is true nonetheless. Thirdly, The negative command, you shall not murder, positively implies that we are to engage in all lawful endeavors to preserve our own life and the life of others. Lawful here means lawful according to God's law. The Christian should not violate God's law in order to preserve life. The Christian, no one, should violate God's law in order to to preserve life. And as I say that, I'm mindful of some of the very difficult ethical questions that sometimes arise in life, especially in wartime. Is it ever right to deceive the enemy to protect innocent lives is one such question. These are difficult ethical questions. And for the sake of time, I'll leave that question and others like it alone and say, generally speaking, it is true. We should not rationalize saying, I will do this evil thing so that good may come. We should not rationalize saying, I will do this evil thing so that good may come. How do you know if good will come, brothers and sisters? How do you know? Is not God able to bring good through your obedience to His moral law? This is a very dangerous habit to get into, ethically speaking, to do what is wrong thinking that by doing what is wrong, good will come. More to the point, when the Sixth Commandment forbids murder, it positively requires us to be concerned with the preservation of human life, for men and women are made in the image of God. The potential applications that flow from this moral principle are too numerous to mention. In brief, I will say that the Sixth Commandment requires us, by way of implication, to take care of ourselves to take care of those under our care, to take care of our neighbors as we have the ability to do so and the opportunity. And so I might ask you questions like this. Are you taking care of your bodies, brothers and sisters? Are you careful about what you put into them, be it food, drink, or other substances? Are you careful to not overwork? I suppose I might also ask, are you careful to not underwork? Are you careful to get enough rest? If you are ill, are you careful to seek proper treatment to the best of your ability? And what about your mind and heart? Are you careful to guard your mind and heart against the sins of worry, bitterness, and jealousy? Proverbs 14.30 says, A tranquil heart gives life to the flesh, but envy makes the bones rot. What is the meaning of this? This wise saying from Proverbs is observing that when someone is inwardly tumultuous, when someone is inwardly not at peace, it has an impact upon their flesh even. It makes their bones rot. You know this to be true. You have seen it in others. Those who are consumed with 
anxieties within the heart. They, they begin to wither away physically too. The heart, that is to say the inner and spiritual life of man, does indeed have an effect upon our physical life. And so I'm asking you this general question. Are you taking care of yourselves, brothers and sisters? The sixth commandment requires it. The command, you shall not murder, requires you to take care of yourself. I could pile up many questions under the main question. Are you doing everything in your power to see to the flourishing of those under your care? Your wife, your children, your aging parents, etc. Are you seeking to preserve their life and see to the flourishing of their life? And many more questions could be asked regarding the preservation of the life of your neighbor. I think you would agree that all of the morality in that wonderful parable that Jesus told regarding the Good Samaritan flows right out of the Ten Commandments, particularly the fifth, sixth, and eighth. You remember that parable? Concerning the Good Samaritan, there was a man in need, and so many walked right on by him. But the Samaritan cared for that man in need, bandaged up his wounds, took him to an inn, and promised to pay the innkeeper for the care of that man. That parable and all of the morality in it flows right out of commandments 5, 6, and 8. Honor your father and mother. This means we're to show proper honor and respect to all men, no matter their position. You shall not murder. We are to see to the preservation of human life, no matter who it is. We're to love our neighbor as ourselves. You shall not steal. steal. The innkeeper was paid for his labors, compensated. All of this is summarized in the command, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you see. And so we could apply this law, you shall not murder, in so many ways. Fourthly, let, rem- let me remind you, that the sixth commandment, along with all the rest, is to be kept from the heart. What are the heart sins which lead to murder, especially murder in the first degree? What are the heart sins that, that lead to that horrible act? Hatred in the heart will lead to it. Jealousy in the heart will lead to it. Bitterness will lead to it. Resentment, unforgiveness. And so I am saying to you, do not murder, brothers and sisters, and do not murder in the heart. Be sure that the sin of murder is removed from you, root and all. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. That is Romans 12, 14 through 21. By the way, the very next words, Romans 13, speak of governing authorities. Everything that Paul says there in Romans 12, 14 through 21, and then in 13, is really rooted in this command. You shall not murder. You shall not murder. You shall not have hatred in your heart for your brother, for your fellow human being. We're to root this sin out from us to the root root in all. We're to get it all, brothers and sisters. Fifthly and lastly, the sixth commandment must move Christians to be concerned to see just laws enacted and upheld in the societies in which they live. As it pertains to the punishment of those who murder with malice and intent and with the preservation of human life in all stages, 
from the moment of conception to the grave. Let us pray and let us use all lawful means according to our individual giftedness and callings to see to it that the murder of children in the womb be outlawed in this land, that human life be respected, and that justice be upheld. But let us begin with self-examination. Brothers and sisters, I ask you, have you kept this law perfectly? Properly understood and fleshed out, we confess that we have violated this law in thought, word, and deed. Thanks be to God for Jesus Christ the Savior, who lived for sinners like you and me, who died for sinners, who rose again on the third day in victory, And having ascended to the Father's right hand, He has poured out His Spirit to convict the world of sin, to regenerate those being called, to write God's moral law anew and afresh upon the hearts of the redeemed, and to refine them. Lord, I say, have mercy on us. Enable us by Your grace to keep Your law because we love You. And we confess that we love You because You first loved us. To the praise of Your glorious grace. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Father in heaven, Move us to savor your law. Move us to read it, to memorize it, to contemplate it deeply, to flesh it out, and to apply it to our lives. God, do keep us from the sin of legalism. Keep us from thinking that we must keep this law to earn your favor. Your favor has been freely given. Move us, O Lord, to keep this law out of gratitude of all for all you have done for us in Christ Jesus. But God, do give us victory over sin. I pray that your people here in this local congregation and indeed that Christians all over the world would live holy lives. God, if we are comfortable with our sin, if we are content about it, remove that from us. Give us a true desire to live holy lives before you in thought, word, and deed. And we do pray for this society in which we live. There is so much injustice. We pray that you would bless us with a just society, with just laws that are upheld according to justice. Father, do a great work in this land. Have mercy upon this nation. Have mercy upon this world. We pray for this great evil of abortion that has taken so many innocent lives in decades past, that it would be eradicated in this land and no longer upheld and condoned. For those who have committed abortions in the past, I pray that you would have mercy upon them. Show them their sin. Draw them to Christ, I pray, by your word and by your spirit. Father, we confess that we all have violated your law and thought, word, and deed. Lord, I pray that we would have this humility about us as we engage with others too, uh, knowing that we are sinners saved by grace. Uh, Father, help us to love you as you have called us to. Help us to love also one another. Help us even to love our enemies. For the glory of your name, in the name of Christ we pray. Amen.